0: Hello, welcome to the May podcast of the special interest group, the vestibular special interest group of the American Physical Therapy Association. My name is Wendy Kriegels. I'm on faculty at the University of Colorado at the Anschutz Medical Campus in the physical therapy program. I also um, treat patients with neurologic and vestibular conditions. On the phone with me today, I have Rachel Tromelin, if you want to introduce yourself.
1: Sure. Thank you, Wendy. Um, I am, too, on faculty. I am at LSU Health Sciences Center uh, here in New Orleans, and like Wendy, I uh, teach neurologic curriculum and also treat patients with vestibular conditions and other neurologic conditions as well. Great.
0: Thank you. So today we're going to start a three-part series, and we're going to go back to the basics. We're going to discuss over um, three sessions the basics of a vestibular exam basically how we do it and teach it Um, we're hoping this um, is applicable to our new graduates across the country who are just getting out as well as those who are in the clinic and doing their clinical rotations i also think since We're a little biased, and we find this area of physical therapy very fascinating. Um, We'd love to get um, therapists who are currently practicing also feel like they do have some of the basic skills to treat patients with vestibular conditions. So, that said, we will kick off with the beginnings of a vestibular exam, as always starts with patient-centered care, and taking a history is um, extremely important. If you listen to your patient, they will tell you where you need to steer your examination. So, Rachel, would you like to begin with just a few comments about how you take history and patient interview, and then I will add as well?
1: Sure. Um, I personally like to stay, you know, very organized, and I have a sheet which I can make available uh, via PDF. I can uh, have it loaded up on the SIG site if people are interested. It's just a vestibular questionnaire sheet um, that leads you on all of the questions that you should ask. Um, And I know Wendy is in agreement with this, but probably the most important place to start um, is starting with past medical history, just like you would with all patients. Um, You want to find out about all conditions, and if their past medical condition um, dictates it, you would like to, um, you know, maybe examine further. For example, if your patient has history of cardiac conditions, such as high blood pressure, diabetes, heart failure, um, you should definitely start with taking vital signs and um, even taking a blood pressure sitting and standing to see if maybe perhaps some of their dizziness is due to orthostasis. Along the lines of um, taking a medical history, you also want to find out about all of the medications that they are on, both prescription and over-the-counter. A lot of medications have the side effect of having dizziness, um, and especially medications in combination can cause dizziness. So this is something that you want to differentiate is, is my patient having a vestibular disorder or are they having some kind of dizziness? Because as you know, not... Every dizziness um, can mean a vestibular disorder. Um, Wendy, do you have any more thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, just um, basically, a lot of times, looking at the referral, um, that it'll often be physical therapy, a valid treat, and the physician may have a diagnosis of dizziness or falls or imbalance. And we all know that that's a that's great we're glad they were referred to us but it really doesn't guide us in what the specific problems are um so to take that that referral one step further and really dig deeper in asking the patient specific questions i really like um the systems review kind of approach where you can go through you know something as simple as having their um, prescription changed on their eyeglasses. You know, if you follow through the system's review of neuromuscular, musculoskeletal, cardiovascular, cognitive psych, um, I feel like that lends itself to your questioning. Now, a lot of clinics have kind of a written form, which I think does help expedite when the patient comes in, they do their intake paperwork, they may actually fill out a systems review form. Um, the thing I stress to my students is, don't just scan that and then put it in the sack of papers to be scanned, but to actually go through with the patient and dig a little bit deeper to see if there's anything else in any of those systems that could be a red flag for symptoms of dizziness or imbalance.
1: Yes, I would I would agree with that. So I think a good place to um, start in terms of what questions do you ask, why do you ask those questions, um, the things that I always tell my students um, or newer therapists is I think a lot of times vestibular patients get a bad rap at being, you know, complicated, and then this type of therapy gets bad rap at being very difficult. It really isn't. It's just difficult because it's unfamiliar. Um, so something that a lot of students and newer therapists feel familiar with is orthopedic patients. The, um, You know, and if you think about the amount of orthopedic patients who have pain, now think about all the different questions you want to know about pain, um, and then turn those questions, turn the word pain into the word dizziness, and that'll pretty much give you 90% of the questions that you want to ask about dizziness. Um, So in thinking about pain, you know, of course you want to know when did the pain start, how did it start, was it sudden, was it gradual? Describe, um, you know, describe the pain. You want to rate the pain severity on a zero to ten scale. How long does the pain last? Is it constant? Does it come and go? What types of things does the pain stop you from doing, et cetera, et cetera? Um, so, if you think about it in those more simple terms, um, it should help make uh, coming up with these questions a little bit easier. Uh, Wendy, what are what are your thoughts?
0: Right, I love, I love that analogy. Um, just to add a couple more um, questions in there, kind of what is their best and worst time of day? Because um, vestibular, different vestibular problems could be better after rest or you know worse with fatigue or whatever. So best worst time of day, just like you do with pain. Um, any provoking activities, especially any positional um, changes, that might provoke their symptoms or any visual motion, any visual activities they might be doing that provoke their symptoms. Um, And then I I like the rating of severity as well. I just use a simple zero to 10 scale to have them give me a subjective rating. And then any precipitating event have they had, this kind of links with the systems review a little bit, but it could be missed. Have you had a fever in the last couple of weeks? Um, Any small fender bender, small concussive force or um fall or any you know um antibiotic use that was um you know ov- over and above maybe what what a, a a normal cold or something would would indicate so um provoking activities best worst time of day um and just more about their onset and any precipitating event, I think, is all I'd add there.
1: Um, And in terms of, you know, the importance of a history, I know Wendy and I are in agreement that, you know, you're going to probably spend the majority of your exam taking a history. Uh, There's no true um, medical differential diagnosis test for vestibular disorders. There are a bunch of tests that can lead you to a conclusion, um, but nothing does replace a really good and thorough history. Um, I usually take at least 20 minutes with all my patients and sometimes even 30 minutes. And no minute of that is a wasted time. Um, It is also very important in terms of making a differential diagnosis that you are familiar with all of the vestibular disorders. Um, And I would refer you a really great reference um, to the vestibular disorders if you need a review from classes is chapter 38 in the Goodman and Fuller book uh, of pathology, you know, the big green book that most students out there I'm sure have. So that's a great review um, of what to kind of look for and what to hear for in all the histories. Um, so, Wendy, after you go through, you know, your systems exam, um, where do you start in terms of taking a history?
0: Well, um One other thing I'll add I I might be taking a step back but if if your patients do fill out kind of an intake form at the beginning along with a systems review I will often throw in if I know that they're coming for dizziness or imbalance I'll throw in a dizziness handicap inventory a DHI or activities of balance confidence um, Scale and ABC. So these are two um, Measures filled out by the patient um and their rating scales that have and they've been kind of tested and tried and true in my opinion um to help kind of put a number on dizziness and imbalance which is kind of nebulous and hard to put a number on but those are two scales that really help they also help me gear my exam so for instance on the DHI there are questions in there specifically that talk about positions that may Instigate symptoms. So then I'm already going down the path of thinking. Hmm. I wonder if there's something positional going on I may start there with my exam. So it's just one other thing to put into the mix to streamline a little bit and Have have kind of a system Rachel like you were talking. It seems like there's so much out there But if you stick to a system and you stick to um, Kind of a framework of thinking you'll find that the pieces do fall into place
1: Mm-hmm. For these I, would patients. I would agree with that. Um, I personally use the ABC as well, and it is a wonderful um, subjective report about the patients, um, how their perception of what their balance is. And it is a 16-item scale. Um, it asks the patients how confident they are doing certain activities. There's 16 items. They rate it on a scale from zero is no confidence to 100 is complete confidence, and you um, add all those items up and divide by 16 to obtain an average. Um, I also use that as a scale. Is, uh, 67% or less is indicative of the patient being at risk for falling. Um, and 50% to 80% it means severe activity restriction. Um, and um, you obviously don't want your patient with a vestibular disorder uh, restricting their activity. You want to kind of you'll get them get them going a little bit more
0: right and i do have um what i have for a reference for that if if people want to look that up i have powell p-o-w-e-l-l from 1995 for the activities balance confidence scale there's a ton more literature out there since then but i believe that was that was the first reference of it And you can Mm -hmm. correct me if i'm wrong on that no
1: i believe you're right on that wendy
0: and then that's the one that i use at least right And then same with the Dizziness Handicap Inventory. Again, I should probably give the reference for that. That's Jacobson, and that was from 1990. And, again, there's been some variations of the scale, and there have been many studies on that. Um, But that is the original source, I believe, is Jacobson from 1990. So. Um, What else? So we should probably talk about the the DHI then. So um, the scale I use is the patient answers 25 questions, and they either answer yes, sometimes, or no. Yes gives you a score of four points, sometimes two points, no, and zero points. And it does cover physical, functional, and emotional um, domains. So they're kind of subcategories, and you might look for a pattern if um, someone, especially on the emotional domain, if they're just really anxious and having a hard emotional time with these symptoms, you may handle them just a little bit um, differently. Um, And the the questions are like, does turning over in bed increase your problem? Because of your problem, is it difficult for you to walk around your house in the dark? So it has 25 real um, kind of functional everyday questions that then the Um, Patients would answer. So that's helpful. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, very.
0: And then, Rachel, you had another um, test that you mentioned that you do, especially for the emotional part Mm -hmm. or the anxiety
1: scale. Mm -hmm. Um, I use the PANAS scale, it's P A N A S, uh, which stands for Positive and Negative Affective Scale. Um, basically what this scale is, it's a quick, scale of, a quick screen for anxiety and depression. And this is not just specific for vestibular patients. You can use this um, with any patient. And it's also not specific for the field of physical therapy. So other practitioners can use it as well. Um, it is, yeah, so essentially all this scale is is 20 words. There are 10 words that are positive words. And there are 10 words that are negative words. So examples of the first couple of words are interested, distressed, excited, upset. Um, And there's a five-point scale. The patient um, rates how often, um, to what extent do you feel this way right now at this present moment? And one is very slightly or not at all, um, up to five, which is extremely. So what you do, I usually give this to my patients to fill out before I even see them when they're in the waiting room, and then I add it up. So you you separate out the positive words and you separate out the negative words. If the positive words, um, if there is a score of less than twenty two, is it, it is indicative of depression. If the negative words scores above a twenty nine, it is indicative that the patient has anxiety. So, again, a really um, good quick screen and uh, to help delineate if your patient is anxious or depressed and to help see you know, if it's something you need to address or refer them out to another practitioner.
0: That's great. And, Rachel, can you easily find that in the literature, or do you have a, a reference or anything for, that, for people um, that?
1: I don't have a reference offhand. I know it, um, it was the way I was introduced to it was in the um, – APTA competency course in the okay. rehab, um, but I could check for that reference right now. Okay. Um, so in the meantime, Wendy, maybe why don't you start in terms of talking about where do you start and what kind of questions you first ask once you've finished your systems review?
0: Um, well. From the patient, um, always starting with the chief complaint is kind of how, how I go through. So this might be a little bit redundant with some ideas we've already talked about, but their chief complaint, I like to think in my mind, is this a person with a balance problem, a primarily keeping stability problem, or is this person with a dizziness problem, a symptomatic problem? Now, they very well could have both. They do go hand in hand. But I find that usually someone will come to me with, gee, I don't know where I am in space and I'm really unsteady and my doctor is afraid I'm going to fall. So that that kind of leads me down one path versus the person, oh, I just feel nauseated. I feel sick all the time. Just driving here really made me feel woozy or, you know, this this never used to happen to me before. Or when I get out of bed, I feel spinning. So, Kind of I start with one of those two paths, if it's more of a dizziness path that I'm on, I want to know the nature of the symptoms. so is it a true vertigo or spinning or rocking sensation is it Is it um brought on with with visual movement or movement of the head or both? So maybe um, someone just watching a soccer game on the TV. Maybe that starts their symptoms. That would be more visual movement versus walking through space, driving a car, turning your head, that kind of thing. Head motion provoked. Um, that's all I. Or or any jumpiness in their vision if objects seem to actually be moving or jumping in their vision. Mm-hmm. If it's more the balance, um, the balance path, I would start more with what conditions are you unsteady with and I think of the vestibular somatosensory in visual domains. So is it only at night or in dim um areas with with poor lighting? Is it on uneven terrain? So I start teasing out those um kind of three symptoms if it's more of a balance problem. I am really relying back on that systems review, though, because if they say it only happens when they get out of bed or when they get up during the night to use the bathroom, I do want to make sure it's not a blood pressure problem in orthostasis. So like you said, Rachel, I really think taking vital signs and perhaps supine to sitting to standing vital signs could be very important for that. But I do want to um, look at kind of what environments are they more unsteady, and what do they do to compensate for it? Is it someone who furniture walks and is always seeking somatosensory information with their upper extremities? Why are they using that compensatory strategy? That will lead my exam. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's all I can think of right now. (laughs) Okay.
1: Um, And in terms of I found the reference for the PANIS scale was uh, first reference uh, development and validation by... David Watson, um, Watson being the last name, in uh, June of 1988. Um, in terms of getting the chief complaint, of course, that's where I start as well. Um, but I delve into kind of not only what were the symptoms like initially, um, I want to know did it come on suddenly or was it sort of gradual over time? Conditions like vestibular neuritis, labyrinthitis, um, Meniere's disease, uh stroke of posterior circulation tend to have a really sudden onset, um, where with things like maybe the migraine-associated dizziness um, or a slow-growing acoustic neuroma would kind of gradually come on over time. And then where are the symptoms as compared with when they, you know, we're seeing the patient obviously after the symptoms have started, so have the symptoms gotten better, worse, or are they the same initially? With a vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis, you would expect the patient would um, be gradually getting better, not perfect, but in the right trend, versus a growing acoustic neuroma would gradually be getting worse.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great point. The other thing is what makes them better or worse, just like the pain. So if they feel better by just closing their eyes, or if they feel better if they lie down flat on a, on a firm surface. That can also give you um, kind of clues into which sensory system is working for them and which sensory system they're probably turning off. But you're right, if, after um, reviewing that um, chapter 38 in the pathology text, I think if you, if you look at it from, the if you have a good knowledge of the array of diagnoses, and you can kind of extrapolate, well, gee, how would these prevent slow growing versus a sudden onset versus episodic in nature, coming and going? If you have a good kind of um, big-picture knowledge of the vestibular-type disorders, that will really start to help you pick out those pieces when you're listening to a patient give their history. There are certain things that will kind of trigger you um, to, to see the pattern, I guess, and and with students um, or physical therapists who just haven't treated this population a lot, I don't think you realize that you do that with all your patients. You, you go from this place of knowing the didactic knowledge to actually working with patients, and you start to recognize patterns, and I think that's a real evolution in thinking and clinical reasoning. And it's at and it we do it with every other patient population, and we can do it with this patient too population mm-hmm. as well.
1: So, in addition to you know knowing about the symptoms, of course, in trying to see a pattern with the symptoms and matching it to a disorder, knowing the duration of the symptoms and the frequency again will fit perfectly perfectly into your differential diagnosis. Referring back to that chapter thirty eight. Probably the two most important questions that you can ask the patient who is dizzy or off-balance, and Wendy's already talked about them, but I want to reiterate just because it's very important, is to describe how they feel without using the word dizzy. Like I said, there are lots of different things other than vestibular disorders that can cause dizziness. So when I have a patient saying, I feel faint, I feel lightheaded, it kind of lends me a little bit to look more into the cardiac system versus if I have a patient who says imbalance, then I'm going to kind of look a little bit more into neuro and general balance versus a true spinning or vertigo vestibular disorder. The other more, most important question is what movements or activities uh, tend to bring on the symptoms or make them worse. Again, this will completely di- guide your differential diagnosis and will start you on what you need to do uh, for treatment.
0: Mm-hmm absolutely and and we all know this but i think it's worth reiterating that balance and and sensing motion is supposed to be a very automatic um process when it's not automatic because there's a problem somewhere in the system you will often um hear patients just like they might become very depressed or socially withdrawn or anxious They may also feel some level of disorientation or confusion or they may even um, complain of some memory problems because they really have had to bring their sense of motion and their ability to stabilize themselves into a more conscious realm. They've had to think about it and you really cannot do that and kind of multitask as much as we normally multitask.
1: Mm -hmm. And I find that, you know, it's very common to have anxiety and depression in vestibular patients, which is why I screen for it. Um, but it, I think, unfortunately, in our society, having anxiety and depression is a very negative connotation. Uh, so you have to be very delicate when asking these questions. Um, what I do to try and disarm my patients when asking them if they feel nervous or feel depressed or feel anxious is I say, you know, say something along the lines of, you know, it's very common for people um, who are dizzy or off balance to feel very nervous or very anxious. Um, If I had a nickel for every patient who walked in my door who felt that way, I could retire to a private island by the age of 35, you know, and make a a little joke about it. So, you know, has that ever happened to you? Do you find that you feel that way as well? So hopefully they could be a little bit more honest with you than um, they might be otherwise. Mhm.
0: And then another thing um to address Rachel and I'd be curious how you do it um but in in kind of our differential thinking we have to think are we going to just stop right now and refer this patient back to their primary or to another practitioner? Are we going to treat them but think they would benefit also from a referral, or are we just going to go ahead with our treatment? We should probably talk a little bit, like, about red flags. So if you mm-hmm. do find on your questionnaire that someone really does seem to have some true depression, is that something you try to work through with them as their problem gets better, or is there a certain line where you think you need to get um, another person on the team from a psych perspective?
1: I typically take it on a case-to-case basis. Um, If I feel that the patient, if the patient does not have a history of an anxiety or a depression disorder, and if I feel like the symptoms, uh, their anxiety and depression symptoms are truly related um, and because of the vestibular disorder, and also if I feel that my therapy is going to help them and get better, I kind of wait and see. I take it uh, into therapy about two to three weeks. If you're going to see improvement in your patients, you're typically going to see it by week two. Um, and if they have started to show improvements and it's almost like you have a different patient coming in to see you, their aspect almost changes completely, and they say, oh, my gosh, I found something. This is working. I know it's not better already, but I feel so much better. Um, but if those feelings tend to linger um, past week three or week four, that is when I refer out, unless I think that they are severe enough when they come in or have a significant history of anxiety and depression, um, then I may refer out a little bit earlier. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's similar to how you handle it, Wendy.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think just exactly you said case by case, there really is no um, true stop here, <laughs> do not pass go kind of thing. With a couple caveats, probably an exception if we feel there is um, something going on in the cardiovascular realm that really, like, they're ready to pass out when you have them go from sitting to standing and their blood pressure really drops, I may start to think, I'm not sure this is a problem for a physical therapist to treat right now. Maybe they need some cardiac workup before. The other thing would be any central signs. So if you're doing a cranial nerve screen or even positional testing and you see central signs that are new. So if you're suspecting a stroke, if you're suspecting a brain tumor, if you're so. Sus- expecting um, multiple sclerosis just based on the things they're telling you. I would probably continue my evaluation and get as much information as I can from my exam, but I would definitely want to go back to the referring physician and perhaps suggest even further like imaging or something just make make that suggestion that this should be looked at but a, many of my patients do come to me and i know they have a central problem i know they have multiple sclerosis and now they've started to fall or i know they've they've started to have dizziness so again it's kind of a if it's something new that's been undiagnosed and you suspect central nervous system that's really where i want that um extra physician backup
1: Mm-hmm. And in terms of referring out for new central problems, a good guideline is the five, if you notice any of the five Ds, and that will put me on the spot to so see if I can remember them, uh, <laughs> dysarthria, dysplo, uh, diplopia, dysmetria, dysphagia, um, and dyscytocokinesia. Oh, if if you if you know if you um, note any of those, it definitely uh, could be a central problem. Of course, you know a new onset of any of these in someone without a previous history of central disorders. Um, you know, another thing, and speaking of, you know, we're dealing with these vestibular disorders with the inner ear. In trying to do the differential diagnosis, is knowing if they have any other ear symptoms such as fullness, ringing or loss of hearing, and where that is. Is the loss of hearing or the ringing in one ear? Is it in both ears, one more than the other? That will help to kind of indicate what other structures in the inner ear may be involved. Um, Knowing that vestibular disorders as well disrupts the VOR, the vestibular ocular reflex, um, vision will be involved. But you really want to know not only how well can they see in terms of visual acuity, but do they have increased problem with vision with head movements or with body movements? That's when you're really taxing the VOR.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's often, I'll just um, say real quickly, that sometimes we will see um, a patient that really does sound like a peripheral vestibular problem, but it is new, and we still, even though it's not a concern as in a red flag concern, but we still may want to refer to an ear, nose, and throat doctor, an otolaryngologist, a neuroautologist for some true ear testing. They may have come to us from a, from just a, a generalist or from the emergency room even. And um there are times where it really would be beneficial to get some true inner ear testing like an ENG or rotary chair or, or you know any of a number of those that's beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about today and if you're lucky sometimes you have a referral source who is an ENT ear um, and they will come to you with some of that testing now you have to keep it in perspective because the testing may come back and say yes the right ear is involved they have a 30% loss on that ear and it still doesn't really tell you what you're gonna do, your exam and your patient interview is gonna tell you what you need to do for that patient. There are times though when you want to have that piece in the medical workup to help towards your prognosis and know more what you're dealing with.
1: Mm-hmm. I would I would agree 100% with that. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of other important things to ask, you wanna also know if they have any previous history of balance, or previous history of dizziness. Um, so, again, disorders um, like Meniere's disease uh, can be very episodic in nature, as is migraine-associated dizziness. So you want to know, Have they um, had previous episodes or is this the first episode? And also, if they've had a previous episode or even since this current episode, um, what kinds of treatments have they tried already? Both have they tried vestibular rehab or have they tried any other pharmacological treatments Um Typically, in the ER, patients will be given Antivert and Meclizine, which are vestibular suppressant medications, not intended to cure the dizziness, but intended to kind of decrease the vestibular system so the patient can be more functional. Um, The other thing that I always ask about, if someone has been to vestibular rehab, um, you because the vestibular rehab is such a specialized area, you want to kind of gauge the skill level of the previous therapist. You want to ask, well, you know, what kinds of activities that you do. Um, I've had this happen on more than one occasion where patients have said, oh, yeah, I've gone to vestibular rehab, and they've described their exercises, and it's no more than just a generalized balance program, um, which will help but not uh, fully. Uh, Wendy, I don't know if you have any um, further thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, I mean, the nice thing about doing a three-part series is we'll be able to really get into intervention, but it's important to say, I think, right up front that um, vestibular rehab should really be tailored to the patient, and that's why we're stressing this, taking time with your subjective interview and going through all the steps we're talking about today because the best benefit is going to come from a tailor-made program for that individual. And you can go through very systematically and find what the triggers are, what kind of syndrome it looks like, and that will lead how you examine further and how you treat them. One size does not fit all when it comes to vestibular programs. Um, And there are many, many clinics out there who will just hand them a sheet of, here, do all of these head movements, eye movements and stand on one leg. And really it's 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 kind of the shotgun approach of just practice everything and I find that patients might do it once, but they are not going to do it consistently. So mm-hmm. when it comes to really figuring out and getting to the bottom of their problems, you'll find that you have 3 maybe 5 exercises that they really need to do consistently daily methodically for certain amounts of time, and they will see results. But if you give them something for somatosensory, visual, emotion, all systems, and try to get everything, they'll spend a half an hour doing them and they won't do them again, kind of thing. I, I
1: agree with that 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk in the future podcast in terms of exercise prescriptions. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you bring up a really good point, of, you know, of course, with all physical therapy, we want to be patient centric. So of course, I want to find out more information about the patient. What's their living situation? Do they have assistance at home? Especially if they are uh, determined that there are significant fall risk. I want to know about their environmental setup. For example, do they have handrails by their stairs? Do they have any adaptive equipment? Um, I of course want to know their function. Um, What things were you doing um, that you can't do now because you're dizzy? And that's going to really tell you how to tailor therapy. I will give you a perfect example um, of this with a patient, how it really changed my plan. Um, I had a patient who was a female in her early 40s who had a sudden onset of uh, dizziness. Her diagnosis um, was Meniere's disease, which she had treated with I'm sorry heard her of she was an acoustic neuroma I apologize this was a while ago. she was acoustic neuroma, which she had treated with radiation and she came to see me about six months um, after she had the radiation she was um, having an exacerbation of her symptoms. her hobby she her job was that she was a federal attorney, so she had to walk around in three three and a half inch heels and she had significant imbalance, but there was no compromising about the heels. that's what she had to wear to be um you know, intimidating in the courtroom, so I couldn't say, well, just wear flats and do better. Um, I really had to kind of work on her specifically in doing exercises and doing ambulation in those shoes. Um, Her hobby was horseback riding, and she loved to gallop and jump and do all those things on her horse. And obviously having a impaired VOR, she could not um, stabilize her gaze and could not hold her balance. So we did the majority of her VOR exercises as she was bouncing up and down on a physio ball to help simulate that movement and simulate the um, demands of that situation. Again, just really finding out about your patient and making it very um, patient-centric. So what is their job? Where do they live? What do they love to do? Um, And and, and lastly and most importantly, what are their goals for attending therapy? What would they like to get back doing? And what are the physical demands? those activities both work and recreational activities Mm
0: -hmm. that's a great patient example you made me think of one that i had just a couple of months ago too and here in colorado we get lots of skiers and lots of people who like to be outdoors and hiking uneven terrain uphill at altitude and i had a gentleman come in who was very complex had a lot of past medical history did have cardiac problems um, and he, his goal was that he wanted to go in the mountains and hike um, independently, but he was getting dizzy doing it, and what I found he'd do is he also would fly fish. So he'd cross streams, and he'd hike to the next stream, and then he'd get in the stream, and the visual motion was really provoking his dizziness, and although he never got complete resolution, he learned strategies. So he learned if he was in a stream, the stakes are pretty high. You're alone and you're on a slippery surface and you're <laughs> dizzy because the water is moving past you. But he could stabilize his gaze on a rock or a tree or something. He could find something to sit and close his eyes for a moment and decrease his symptoms and then get up and do it again. So it was a matter of teaching him the best way to compensate, even though he had um, something that I wasn't able to cure. It, I think he really benefited from knowing how to pace what made his symptoms better, and how he could still reach his functional goal and his recreational goal, even though we couldn't obliterate the, the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: so. And the um, last couple of things that I always like to know about my patients, um, of course, you know that vestibular patients are at an increased risk for falling, and falls can have so many catastrophic, catastrophic consequences. So you really want to ask Have you had a history of falls? And you also want to ask about near falls. So were you in a situation where you lost your balance, and if you didn't grab onto something you think you might have gone over? And I treat near falls just as serious as falls. Um, If you want to intervene as appropriate with things like assistive devices and equipment um, and those sorts of things, especially in the um, outdoor community. I don't know if anyone has ever been to New Orleans, um, but I'm sure this isn't, uh, it would be the same in any big city. The sidewalks and streets are just very uneven. Um So very commonly, I have patients who can get around fine on even surfaces in their house without an assistive device, um, but I recommend that they, they do use a cane outside um, to help compensate for those surfaces. Um, I also asked about hours of sleep, and I think this is just a general good health question um, because if someone is only getting three to four hours of sleep, and uh, like Wendy had said before, these the vestibular activities and balance is supposed to be automatic. So now you are only have a patient who's getting a couple hours of sleep, and they have to devote now a bunch more attention and allocation. They're just going to be so tired it's going to make their symptoms worse. Um, so ideally, I want my patients getting a full night of sleep. And also because of the VOR dysfunction, I always ask about um, driving. And if A, if they're able to drive, and also if they had to make any modifications. Very commonly, I'll see patients who will be able to drive on side streets um, or less busy but be afraid to get on the highway because of the um, challenges with the VOR. Um, and lastly, I always ask about exercise. And and it's my baseline goal for every single patient. They have to walk at least 20 to 30 minutes a day outside their house. It can be broken up for patients who don't have as great endurance, you know, into two or three 10-minute walks. Um, but I really, you know, need to get them both physically active, and we'll talk about this more with the treatment intervention, but I think the exercises are only half the battle. Your other half of the battle is just getting them active and moving in their environment. Um, Wendy, anything else to add? That pretty much sums up all the questions that I go over.
0: Yeah, I I can't think of anything else right now, but I love that recommendation of, of walking and general activity, and that will really roll in when we talk about intervention as a whole. Um, but I don't have anything else to add.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much for uh, listening to our podcast. Um, Like you said, this will be a three-part series. So uh, the next podcast, we'll kind of talk about doing the basics of a a vestibular exam. Um, So thank you and have a good day.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye.